0: you can turn to Hebrews 9, we'll be continuing our sermon series in Hebrews. In the first part of chapter 8, we were told that the main point of Hebrews is that we have such a high priest, such a high priest as had been spoken about before that in the chapters before that, who is able to save us to the uttermost. He's just in the middle of talking about him though there. He's going to go on and talk about him more. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He tells us in the beginning of chapter 8. He has a better covenant with better promises. In a better sanctuary. With a better offering. Than what was ever in the old covenant. Last week we focused on the better covenant. With its better promises. In the rest of chapter 8. And today, we're focusing on the better sanctuary in the first part of chapter 9. And next week, we will begin to focus on the better offering. We'll be on that one for more than one week, I'm sure. But our scripture reading about the better sanctuary is found in Hebrews 9. So I'll read that to you, the first 14 verses of that chapter. Really going to uh, be dealing with the verse 11 through um, 14 probably this week as well as next week. It's going to be one of those overlapping uh, passages. But uh, Hebrews 9 beginning in verse 1. Here is the word of God. Then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Just, Just remember the first covenant we learned last week, the way he's using that term. It refers to the covenant that was made when he brought him out of Egypt with Moses. So... The the temple or the the tabernacle at time and all those things were, were set up. So again, verse one, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer. And the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold. In which were the golden pot that had the manna. Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared. The priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Thanks be to God for His precious, infallible word. This section has a lot to say about the tabernacle, or maybe we can say about tabernacles. Verse 9 tells us that the tabernacle in the Old Testament was symbolic of the present time. And so we want to look at it that way. It's symbolic of what is now. It was filled with symbolism that shows us about Christ, our great high priest. Today we'll look at what it shows us about Christ and his ministry. So first, the tabernacle was designed to show us that God is with his people. Chapter 9 opens, as we read a moment ago, then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared. You see that the tabernacle there is referred to as an earthly sanctuary or holy place. The word holy is uh, the same root word. Sanctuary is the same root word as the word holy in the original language. So a sanctuary is a place where God is present, where, where you engage with God, where you interact with God. It's a holy place where he manifests his presence, we might say. A tabernacle is, that's a word for a tent. So this tent, it says, was prepared by human hands at God's command, God's instructions in the first covenant. Again, that's used to refer to the covenant that was made with them when they came out of Egypt, when Moses was given the pattern for, for that tabernacle. This tent was prepared, according to God's instructions, to be God's tent, to represent where God dwelt with his people, a holy sanctuary pitched in the midst of the tents of his people. Now, the idea was that God dwelt among his people. This was a remarkably encouraging arrangement. Here they were and God says, I have my tent with your tents. I live among you. It was a visible token that God was with them. It gave them a concrete expression of his promise that he would be their God and that They would be his people and that he would dwell among them. They had a visible representation of that when they had a tent, God had his tent. What happened when they moved into the land and built houses? God built his house among the people's houses, he had his house with their houses. Just as he had been in a tent when they were in tents, so when the land had peace and was settled. Then he had a house among them, a temple that he lived in, the representation of his dwelling among them. This was suitable to their relationship with him at that time, during the time of the first covenant until Christ came, before he came. And and it is instructive to us now that he has come. So it had it had benefit for them, suitable for them at that time. It has benefit for us in looking back. And learning from it about more about Christ. Now, Christ who came to dwell among us in human flesh is said to be God's tabernacle or God's temple. And we are living stones in the house in which God dwells. Which is an amazing thing. Uh, John 1:14 says of the divine Son of God, that the word or the Logos. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, you know what that word means? It means that he tented among us, literally. That he tabernacled among us. His tent was with our tents. His human flesh, which is a tent, was with our human flesh. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw God among us, living and walking among us. Now, we should not look then at church buildings as temples or sanctuaries today. They're meeting places, and then they're places that we do meet with God, but not in the same sense of the sanctuary of old. As Jesus told us in John 4, 23 through 24... God is no longer worshiped at Jerusalem or some other place as a sanctuary, but he is worshiped in spirit and in truth. In other words, not as opposed to falsehood, truth is opposed to falsehood, but that he's rather as opposed to image and shadow that represent the truth. So you can have a building that represents a sanctuary. Then you can have the sanctuary where God is actually present and the people are with God. Now we as people joined to Christ who is in heaven with this with the same spirit of God dwelling in him and dwelling in us are a living temple. You have to get your head out of the idea of a building. It's people now with the spirit indwelling them a living temple, living stones Joined to Jesus Christ as our head. okay. Dwelling, God dwelling in his people. Paul speaks of us as seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Colossians. So here, we who are still on earth, Christ is in the heavenly places. And we are there with him in a way because we're part of one organic church, one sanctuary. In Ephesians 2... He speaks of us as, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into what? A holy temple of the Lord, a sanctuary, a tabernacle, a temple of the Lord in whom you also are being built together. We're part of it. As a dwelling place for God in the Spirit, so there are many scriptures that we could look at to talk about that. I referred to uh, Peter a little bit before when I was uh, talking about it, and read that verse to you later in, when we do the Lord's Supper. But the the furnishings of the tabernacle are also rich with symbolism about God dwelling among His people. What happens when God dwells with His people? What what is there when God's dwelling with His people? What does that what effect does that have? There were two parts to the tabernacle that was that God had them prepare in those days. The holy place and the holy, holy place. <laughs> the holy of holies, as we call it, or the most holy place. The holiest of all, as it says here in Hebrews. It's given different names like that that are similar to each other. Now, I'll say more about the, these two compartments in a minute, but but first let's look at how each of them was furnished. Verse 2 says that in the first part was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread. The lampstand had oil lamps in it that the priests were to tend every day to keep them burning. They were to add the oil and do whatever needed to be done to keep that lamp going. And the table had the showbread on it. 12 loaves that were replaced every Sabbath day. The lampstand showed the people that God was the source of light and truth when he dwells among them, one who made known the truth to them. This, of course, represents Christ, who is said to be the light of the world, who tabernacled among us, who is the prophet by whom all the prophets spoke, who is the light of all of his people. By his light, we're enabled to see the truth about God and who he is. The truth about ourselves and who we are and our need of salvation and the work of God in us. We're enabled to see our sin clearly. We're able to see the way of forgiveness. We're able to see the promises of God concerning us. We have light. We're not wandering around in the darkness. Not knowing where to go. Not knowing what's true. God dwelling in our midst. Is the source of light. Be sure that you receive his word then. With true understanding and faith. When Christ is shining on you. The word is alive to you. It convicts you of sin. It gets into you. It comforts you with the promises. It stops you in your tracks. Sometimes to comfort you. Sometimes to to stop you from sinning. It's something that you actually trust. It brings about a response to God of love and delight in him and who he is. The table of showbread shows that God is the source of our sustenance. Yes, he is, we know, the one that gives us our daily bread, as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread to maintain our bodies. But much more, the point of the tabernacle and the bread in the tabernacle is that he spiritually nourishes, nourishes us with the bread of heaven. Jesus Christ declared plainly that he was the bread that came down from heaven to give eternal life to the world that we might know the father through him. Without this bread, you have no power to live God, live for God, or to know God. You're not able to grow and thrive in your walk. If you have children and you don't give them any food, they can't grow and thrive. You, you can't advance from glory to glory, which is what we do as God's people. You are dead even while you live because without Christ, your life is not lived for God. It cannot live. You cannot live for God. So you see that in the first covenant in the old covenant, God was pleased to show them that he was their source of light and life in the, in the symbolism of the tabernacle. Now Christ is the tabernacle And we through faith in him are made holy. And we have the light that he gives. And the life that he gives in us. As his holy temple. The light is there. The bread is there. God the Holy Spirit fills the whole tabernacle. Christ and his people with life and light. The people who are joined to him by faith. Now the second part of the tabernacle. This is the. What we might call the deeper part. This is the Holy of Holies. Okay, so you've got the holy place, very restricted place. Then you've got the Holy of Holies, which is far more restricted. Okay, what is here? There there are even more items mentioned. So so let's look at them. This chamber that it represents God's very presence and throne room. Okay, this is where He is seated, as it were. What we saw in the vision with the Ancient of Days. Here is, here is his, his place, you see. And uh, so it's, it's the, the Holy of Holies. So first of all, it says that there is here the golden censer. Okay, the, the word here simply means a holder of incense. And so you'll find it translated different ways sometimes. Some people say the altar of incense, and some people say the censer of of incense. The word itself could refer to either the altar of incense, which is actually in the first part of the tent, not in the Holy of Holies, but in the holy place, the first part, instead of the Holy of Holies, where it was to be kept burning constantly. So It could refer to that altar of incense, and many think it does, or it could refer to a portable censer that you would carry incense in an incense holder. Okay, And the high priest would get incense off of the incense altar that burned continually. When he was going into the Holy of Holies once a year, he would take that censer with him, a portable one that he could carry, not the whole altar. And he would go inside with that incense, filling it with the smoke of the holy incense in the inner chamber while he ministered there. The main idea of the passage of what it actually says is that it was for the Holy of Holies. Okay, so whether we're talking about the altar of incense, it was for the Holy of Holies to be taken in there, the incense to be taken in there, or whether we're talking about it as a portable sensor, that was for the Holy of Holies that was to be taken in. I kind of lean toward it being the altar of incense because it's talking about these big pieces of furniture that were there. And so the, you know, whatever the case, it doesn't really matter that much. But incense represents clearly in Scripture the offering up of pure, pleasing prayer, holy prayer, which rises with the sacrifice as a sweet savor to God. Such prayer is not offered up by human by sinful humans because our prayers are tainted with sin. But only by Christ. Thus, the incense represents his prayers offered up ultimately with his sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, there was no one to really pray such prayers. And so there was a symbolic representation of prayer by incense rising up to God who could intercede for us, who could be holy and really truly holy before God. So in the tabernacle of old, it showed that such prayer was essential. Thus, it was symbolized by holy incense that was made with a unique formula that wasn't to be used for any common use, only to represent prayers offered up to God. Now that Christ has come, it dishonors him to use incense. Because now there are holy prayers that ascend to the throne of God from him. He is there interceding. We don't need to have something symbolizing that because we actually have it now. It was a provision that was made suitable to them in the Old Testament until Jesus Christ came, who now in our flesh offers up holy prayers that are pleasing to the Father. This is a huge encouragement to us because always there is faithful. Holy prayer happening on our behalf. Jesus Christ ever lives, as we saw earlier, to make intercession for us. On our part, we're encouraged to pray in his name. Okay, The holy incense is going up and our prayers are sweetened by his incense and acceptable to God. Though we're still got much sin in our lives, much sin in our prayers, they're sanctified by Jesus Christ in whose name we approach the Father who has forgiveness of our sins and who also intercedes for us even as we intercede. So it's a huge encouragement. Now along with that, uh, there was the Ark of the Covenant, which was the centerpiece of the whole whole temple, representing Christ before the presence of God, the footstool of God, which I say, this is a throne room here. So here you have this representation. This is what we read in Daniel 7, where one like the Son of Man went up to God the Father in glory and was given dominion and a throne at his right hand. There was a sense in which the whole tabernacle was actually built and later the temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. It was here that God was represented as connecting with his people. This inner chamber was God's footstool where he connects with us. The Ark represents Christ who is before the Father for us. We're told that there were three things that were in the Ark. But the principal thing, some of these things were not always there necessarily, but the principal thing that was in the Ark were the tablets of the covenant. These had the Ten Commandments inscribed and are the requirement for there to be communion with God. You have to have God's law be, in, in order to come before him. God's law kept. His moral law. We have broken these. And God showed Israel that they had broken them. So that when he brought the Ten Commandments to them, there was thunder and lightning and terror. And don't even come near me because you'll be destroyed because you don't, you don't keep this stuff. You don't keep this. You, you violate these. We saw in Psalm 40 that he came with the law written in his heart. And we're going to look at that further. It wasn't just written on stones, which is the representation of what had to be done. But Christ actually living out the, the holy law of God, the moral law of God, fulfilling all righteousness for us is before the father is our representative to connect heaven and earth To connect God's people to him. This is what God requires of his people. And this is what Christ provides. God established a tabernacle for his people to meet all the requirements for them to have fellowship with him. The other two items were the pot with the manna in it and the rod of Aaron that blossomed. When Jesus was here, he told us that he was the true manna that came down from heaven to give life to the world. He also is the one who has authority as the anointed priest and king. The thing that was represented by Aaron's rod that blossomed. You may remember that, that uh, they, people were contending with Aaron about who should lead and who should be the high priest. Why, why was it just Aaron that God had chosen Aaron? And uh, so he said, well, take your, your staffs and put them out here. And the one that, that brings forth blossoms and buds, that one will be the, that will be the rod of the one that is to lead. And Aaron's rod was the one that did that, and so this uh, this may also be the staff that was used to do miracles. But in any case, Christ is the one who has been anointed and is represented. You see again as the one that God chose the anointed the anointed one to represent His people before God. On top of the Ark, there was the mercy seat, essentially a lid that was. Gold that, uh, upon which the blood of the covenant was sprinkled. The blood that was uh, appointed by God in the old tabernacle. It was sprinkled each year to make atonement for the priests and for the people. The priests had to have atonement too because they were sinners. On, on Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. Uh, this represented the sacrifice that atones for sin. That sacrifice that Christ was eventually to make and that he has now made. We're going to have a lot more to say about that in the future. Okay, we're just touching on it a little bit today. Above the mercy seat was the cherubim. What did the cherubim represent? They were the ones that were appointed. You Remember when Adam and Eve sent in the garden to guard the holy place so that it would not be defiled. So here they are in this holy place, guarding it, that it be not defiled. But of course, these cherubim are just images of they're, they're just representations of that, of God's holy protection of his holy sanctuary in the place where he dwells. That there is nothing unclean that comes before him that is not destroyed by him as their consuming fire. So everything had to be sanctified. To appear before these these guardians that were appointed to bring judgment to anything that did not belong there. So all of these things and all of these things were shown how God dwells with his people. How he tabernacles among us. And all of these things were shown of Christ. To have God dwell with us is an inestimable privilege. It is the restoration of how things are meant to be for a human being. We're made to dwell with God. Everything is wrong if we do not dwell with God. We're meant to have communion with him as our source of spiritual life and light. We're in the darkness and helpless without his nourishment and his light. We are meant to have commandment keeping lives with pure prayers and service that are an offering of sweet incense to him. This is all what is represented here as how things ought to be and what God provides that they may be. With the tabernacle, the Lord shows that he provides for us all that we need as his people to live with him. It is Christ who is the tabernacle. It is Christ Who is the sanctuary where we're able to come to God and have everlasting communion with our father. But there is clearly a second thing that is shown by the tabernacle and its ordinances. The tabernacle with its ordinances also shows us how unfit sin has made us to dwell with God. We need to see this because we're forever minimizing sin. That's what we do as people, as fallen people. We do not accept how unacceptable sin has made us to God, how unfit we are to dwell with him. Sadly, it has become a very common thing for churches to turn the message of the gospel upside down. Instead of showing people that they're desperate sinners who are much worse than they think they are, who are unfit to dwell with God, then instead they are told that even though other people might not think much of them, that God knows how holy and good you are, how pure you are. God sees your pure heart and your lovely heart and all of these things. And it is a great wickedness because the Bible tells us the very opposite it's deception. We think that we're good when the Bible says that our very hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, so much so that we can't even know them. Jeremiah 17 9. The Bible tells us that our sin has separated us from God and turned his face away from us. Isaiah 59, 2. Even our best works are as filthy rags of defiled rags before him. We think hell is too extreme. Don't we? Because Because we're deceived. How could God send someone to hell? We have a hard time dealing with that because our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We, we, don't, we don't come to terms with that. We can't see that. And the tabernacle says that's how it is. Like you are sinful and you can't come to God. There are all kinds of barriers set up. We think that nobody deserves to go to hell when in fact the Bible teaches that we all do. Now, with the tabernacle of old, God erected barriers then by which his people were kept apart from him. Symbolically, as it were at that time, lest they be consumed on account of their sin. Verse six and seven describes the restrictions. These restrictions are there to reveal to us that we can't go to God because we're sinners. Okay, verse six says that nobody but the priest could go into God's house at all and to do the, not only to do their service, only after being purified. Look, look at verse 6. The words are, Now when these things had been thus prepared, this tabernacle had been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Other people weren't allowed to go in. The priest went in. Now this verse, verse 6, doesn't emphasize that so much, but verse 7 brings this together. Verse 7 shows even further that only the high priest could go into the actual place that represented God's dwelling place, the inner sanctuary. But into the second part, verse 7 says the, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Note, well, he was the only one who could go in and he could only do that once a year. And for what purpose to bring sacrifices for his own sin and the sin of the people committed in ignorance? Now, by sins committed in ignorance, it means sins that were not committed by people who are trying to remove themselves from God. In other words, when we are people who are truly God's people, when we're born again, when we have the Holy Spirit, we sin, and then we fall, we fall into sin, and then we regret it. and We say, why did I do that? The good that I want to do, I do not do, but the evil I hate, that I do. And we repent. But when someone says, I'm tired of God, I don't want to have anything to do with God, I'm not going to serve God anymore, and they sin in that way, of course there's no sacrifice for sin for that. That's a deliberate rejection and repudiation of God, as opposed to, a falling and stumbling into sin, where there is forgiveness with God if we repent and come to Him. So He could, uh, there were there were symbols of atonement. He could only enter with these symbols of atonement and symbols of pure prayer, as one who is also himself symbolically purified. It was all symbol. He he wasn't really holy, was he? But he was made holy by all kinds of washings and sacrifices and things like that. And the people, same thing. And the incense, there weren't real prayers there that were acceptable to God, but there were representation of that. That's how it was in the temple. So you see the point. The tabernacle shows that even the people God called out to be his own people were not fit to come to him because of their sin. There were all sorts of washings, all sorts of sacrifices, all sorts of gifts and offerings to purify them, even to be acceptable in an earthly tabernacle. All showing that they still needed to be purified and still needed atonement for their sins. If purification was needed for ritual acceptance, how much more for real acceptance before God? Now, by not letting the people go in except the high priest for in that for only a moment once per year to make atonement, the Lord was showing his people how unfit they were. That is not my interpretation. That is the interpretation that we're given in verse eight in the word of God. Look at what it says. All of those things where the priest could only couldn't go in but once a year and no one else could go in. The Holy Spirit indicating this. Why did the Holy Spirit have all that? That the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The people could not go in to the holy place that was a copy because the way to go into the holy place that was real was not yet manifested. What was shown symbolically Was true in actuality. Excluded because of sin. As long as the temple stood. It showed that the way for sinners to come to God. Had not yet been accomplished. It showed that until Christ came. All their offerings did not open the way for sinners to come to God. They, They couldn't truly go to God by those offerings. Look at verse 9 and 10. What does it say about that earthly tabernacle? It was symbolic. For the present time in which gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation, when the real sacrifice would be made. These were only symbols of purification. The purification that was needed. There was encouragement in these symbols. There was encouragement that God was going to provide this. But these ceremonies themselves were not to be rested in. They showed and kept alive the fact that sin had separated God's people from them. They couldn't go in by these. The priest couldn't stay in. He could only drop in quickly and come back out. These rituals could not make the consciences rest that their sin had been taken care of before God. Why? Because it hadn't. It had not yet been taken care of. They could only encourage them that God had received them and had promised that he would take care of their sin so that they were waiting to be made complete by what would be done. But more than mere rituals were needed to actually do that. And anyone with a conscience knew that. An animal who has no idea why it's being killed. It's just as a symbol. Is, has no participation in any kind of sacrifice to atone for sin. It's only something that, that, that is a model, a picture of what needs to be done. It can no more make be a, a substitute for a guilty sinner. A ritual can't be a substitute for a guilty sinner. You have to have a real individual who is suited to do that. So the very symbolism itself did not allow the people to come even symbolically into a symbolically holy place to make it very, very clear that these symbols of purification and atonement had not and could not ever open the way for sinners to come to God. That's why they were done over and over. In the tabernacle, we see what Christ had to do then. And that's that's what we want to see next. So we see that the tabernacle showed that God dwells with his people. And we saw that it shows that his people are sinners. So that they have to have provision made for him to dwell with them. And in the tabernacle we see what Christ had to do. Represented by those signs. The people under the old covenant were to see from these symbols what God was going to do. Now they could only see it in a shadowy way. But they were to see in their ceremonies that God was going to provide for them in the future. And he told them that. You remember when uh, Abraham was supposed to offer his son, and then instead he had the ram in the thicket? And he said, Not this is the sacrifice that God requires, but he said, God will provide the sacrifice that is required in the mount. That was just a symbol of it. And he said, I'm going to provide the real thing. And everyone was looking for that. They were not to rest in those ceremonies themselves which they sometimes did, okay? and people still rest in ceremonies today, but rather in God, who by the ceremonies showed what he would do in the Son that was promised to them. The ceremonies showed that an undefiled priest, okay, who was cleansed by all those ceremonies and things, an undefiled priest must go before God's throne, one who must be truly holy to offer the sacrifice for sin. The ceremonies showed That he must go in with pure holy prayers. okay, Like the incense that was there in the ceremony. That was prayers that were acceptable to God. The ceremony showed that he must make an atonement. That would actually atone for sin. Blood must be shed by one who stood in the place of God's guilty people. Represented by animals but certainly not accomplished by them. The ceremony showed that the law of God carved on the tablets of stone, must be set before God in their behalf. Not a wooden box with the law written on it, but a living human with the law truly kept in obedience and love before the Father, a living heart. We are to see that God who provided a tabernacle in the Old Covenant has provided Christ as his tabernacle in the new covenant. He is the sanctuary where sinners meet God. Not symbolically, but actually and truly. Look how our text shows us that Christ is in reality what was represented in the tabernacle of old. Verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. not with the blood of goats and cows, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He, here is an offering much different than the offerings of old. It is the offering of Christ himself brought before God himself. What was only symbolized has now been done for real. He has obtained by that eternal redemption. Notice how it says that he entered in once for all. We saw that before that the priest of old went in once a year to make the symbolic atonement. That, that it was done every year showed that real atonement did not happen the year before. Because if real atonement had been accomplished before, the year before, they wouldn't have to do it the next year, would they? And it hadn't been accomplished the year before that or years before that. It had never been accomplished because they, had to, they did it again. They had to keep the symbol up because the event had not occurred. It was repeated because it was only symbolic. Now that Jesus atoned for our sin in the true tabernacle, he will never have to do it again. That's why God did not give us a church calendar in the New Testament with annual repetition. Men were wrong to add annual celebrations of Christ's birth and death and resurrection and ascension, especially when they go through periods of fasting as if waiting for Jesus to come and then periods of sorrow on the anniversary of his death as if he were in the grave again and they're waiting for him to come out. And then rejoicing as if he has just now been risen again and again and again and again every year. No, once Christ made atonement, it never needed to be done again. And so New Testament worship is different than Old Testament worship. Nowhere do you find annual ceremonies appointed in the pages of the New Testament. Now that he has come, we are to declare what he has done each Lord's day. And to rejoice in what he has done each Lord's Day. No longer do we look at it as something that needs to be done. Or something that has just been done. We look at it now as what was done 2,000 years ago. Yes, we look for what is yet to be done. There are still things that are yet to be done. And we look for those. The rest of God's people uh, need to be drawn in. Jesus said, I have many sheep that are not of this fold. I have to bring them. He's doing that. He's bringing in the nations. We, his saints, have to be perfected in holiness. We're certainly not that. We've got to grow and mature and become all that he's called us to be. The destruction of all his enemies is yet to happen, including the destruction of the enemy of death, so that his people will be raised up with new bodies. And his glorious return has to happen to gather all of us to him to live with him forever in new heaven and new earth. But what was shown at the tabernacle as not yet accomplished at that time has now been accomplished. And so we don't act like we're waiting for Jesus to come. We don't act like we're waiting or we're, that he has just been crucified and we're waiting for him to rise. No, we come as those rejoicing that these things have all been done, that he is a savior always at the right hand. He's not in the grave. He's risen. He's alive. What assurance you ought to have that there is forgiveness in Christ. Verse 13 and 14 say, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If it worked symbolically, how much more does it work in reality? In other words, if they were purified symbolically, how much more are we purified by Christ himself? We have God's son himself who made atonement by his blood. We have him who presented prayers as holy incense and was heard. We have him as the one in whom God's commandments are found. Christ himself has tabernacled among us. He has fulfilled all that was required to bring us into fellowship with God. So don't be an idiot who tries to do for yourself what you can never do. You can't make yourself right with God. Christ came. He is the one. The tabernacle is Christ, us in Christ, trusting in him. Don't try to make yourself right with God by rituals when what has been done has been done in truth. It's not rituals that make us right with God. They never did. They portray what is done or what needs to be done. But Christ himself is the one that we trust in. He is the tabernacle, the sanctuary where sinners can live in communion with God, not by coming to a building, but by trusting in him who died and rose again and living with him. Come to him, lean on him, or perish. Those are the only options. Come to him, lean on him, or perish. Come to him, or go on in your aimless, confused, foolish, destructive path to eternal misery. Those are the options. Rise and let us give thanks to God. Gracious Father, we rise before you to give thanks to you and to your son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Lord, for what you have done for your people. We praise you that long ago that you established a tabernacle For your people where you showed what had to be done in order that sinners might have communion with you. You showed that sinners do not have communion with you and cannot have communion with you. That they can't even approach you. And you showed nevertheless that you dwelt with your people. And we praise you, O Lord, that you showed that in that dwelling that you provided all that we need for communion with you. It was shown in symbols, and now it has been done by Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice and to take great comfort in what you have done. We thank you that our brothers in the Old Testament, people like Abraham and David, that they took comfort in the word that you had spoken to them of promise, knowing that you would do what was required. How much better it is now for us that we get to look and see what you did. What comfort it gives us to see that you sent your very own son. That he shed his blood in order that we might be redeemed. That he became flesh in order that he might represent us. And that representing us, he represented us as one who had the law in his heart. The one who fulfilled your law, not merely in his heart, but when it is in his heart, Then it comes out in all of life. What comes out of us, Lord, is still way too much sin. We pray that you would have mercy on us because we have come to Christ. We pray, Lord, that we might see change, that we might see growth, that we might see progress. For there is much that is yet to be done. And we thank you that forgiveness is complete. But we look to you, Lord, to bring about that transformation, that complete transformation that you have promised. What a long way we have to go. We don't even grasp how far we have to go. But we know that you will do that work. But Father, we do want to praise you and thank you that even as we began in the service today, that though you're angry, your anger is turned away. That that happened in a whole, for the whole body of Christ from beginning to the end of the world when Jesus Christ finished his work. And he said, it is finished. And truly, it was finished. The sacrifice had been made. The atonement had been received. He declared your name to his brethren. And he told us to praise you. Here we are then, Lord, standing before you now, thanking you for what you have done, what you did 2,000 years ago. With all the church of God, we lift up our hearts in adoration and praise and thanksgiving to you, O Lord. Please, Lord, help us then to rejoice in what has been accomplished for us and to go forth making it known in all of the world. For you are a holy God and you have reconciled us to yourself through your Son. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon your church this day and cause your people everywhere to rejoice in Christ Jesus, our King, our risen Savior, who is reigning at your right hand until all of his enemies are made his footstool. Bless us, Lord, as we come now before you. To the table. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of the Lord. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And our God and father. Who has loved us. And given us everlasting consolation. And good hope by grace. Comfort your hearts. And establish you. In every good word and work. Amen.